Hey everybody, welcome back to Stuff You Don't Need to Know. This is Jay, and today we're going to be discussing M. Night Shyamalan's Glass. So before, any go, before I go any further, just so you know, this will be a spoiler-filled discussion of not only the movie Glass, uh, I'll also talk a little bit about Split and Unbreakable. So if you haven't seen those and you don't want any spoilers, push pause, go watch the films, and then come on back. Alrighty, so if we're really going to be talking about Glass, we got to really back up and talk about M. Night Shyamalan. I have very mixed feelings on this gentleman. Um, look, years ago, Sixth Sense came out. It was absolutely amazing. I really felt that he caught lightning in a bottle with that film. But I think, you know, what happened with that is, of course, spoiler alert if I really need to say that, you know, there's the twist ending. Uh, the kid sees dead people, but guess what, Bruce Willis, you're one of those dead people. Um, you know, and it was absolutely amazing. But I think the thing is, is that going forward now, that's sort of his MO is I got to have a twist. I got to have a twist. <clears throat> and in the sixth sense, the thing is, he tells a very good story. He does drop some hints in there about, you know, his big twist ending that's coming. If you really go back and watch or when they kind of do the recap at the end where they show you, you know, how this twist came about, how there were some signs out there that Bruce Willis was in fact dead, you know, you're like, wow, that was absolutely amazing. I didn't really see this coming. And I think as, you know, he started making more and more films, that's really what he wanted to do. He really wants to give you that twist. You know, where's that big twist? And I think what happens is, is in the films is he ends up taking up so much time to try to set up the twist that you just get lost and you get a little bit bored. And I think that's what we find with Glass. And what I want to say overall is I think Glass had the potential to be a very good movie but at the end of the day, I found it to be pretty mediocre, and I think the storytelling, the way M. Night Shyamalan told this story, that's really that's really kind of the big sticking point. That's what really kind of turns this from a potentially good film into a pretty mediocre film. I think this is a film that's going to be discussed for a long while. I have a feeling that there are going to be people out there that are going to have the opposite opinion and, and tell me that he did a great job setting up, you know, the big twist here. I will say this, though, and I'm going to be honest, I am not a fan of N. Night Shyamalan at all, um, especially since he ruined The Last Airbender. I'm sorry, he he just destroyed that entire, you know, mythos, whatever, you know, thankfully we still have the animated series out there that you can find on Amazon. They gave us Legend of Korra. It lives on in comics and whatnot. And, uh, you know, so he didn't totally destroy it, but, uh, he, he just really stabbed the fans in the heart, in the back, wherever, when he made that film. That that was a film he just should have left alone. I, I feel that was a total vanity project. And that's the thing is, I think after The Sixth Sense, most of his films are big vanity projects. And when he does it like that, the films really are from god-awful to very mediocre. And that's what we have here in Glass. Alrighty, so what's the story of Glass? So two years ago, if you saw the film Split with James McAvoy, who um, plays a young man by the name of uh, Kevin Kevin William Crum, uh, a man with 20, I think it's 23 to 26 different personalities. 
Um, one of them is a personality known as the Beast, which is supposed to be the next step in evolution of mankind. Uh, super strong, fast, agile, almost indestructible. Uh, that was a personality that was trapped inside. And, you know, his character, uh, or I should say all the characters in him, all the personalities in him were at war. Half of them didn't want the beast to emerge, but the other half did because they felt that the world needed to see that this is the next step and the beast was going to be like an avenging angel and kind of wreaking havoc on people that, you know, I don't want to say have seen the light because that, that term is thrown around, but I think more like the beast's agenda and the horde, the horde were the group of personalities that supported the beast. Um, their sort of agenda is to reveal the beast to the world and then sort of wreak havoc on those that deserve punishment, people that haven't suffered, that haven't really seen life. Because if you remember in that film, there's a young girl named Casey. She's one of the girls that's kidnapped. Um, and while while the other girls that are kidnapped are pretty much losing their minds and and really just really just falling victim to the horde and and victim to the beast, you know she's trying to survive. And in the end, the beast sees that you know this girl has been abused. You know, and and they do a flashback where they show that uh, you know after her father passes away, Casey lives with her uncle, and her uncle is physically and sexually abusive to her so seeing that the beast is like you know you've suffered you felt pain you know you should rejoice because you know you're you're like a chosen one and he he does let her go um that was a great film and i think what was great about that film is m night Shyamalan took his vanity out of it uh if he made a cameo in it it was probably a very small one that I don't remember because that's another thing that he's famous for is sticking himself in his films uh, to the point that uh, the lady, the lady in the water, the lady in water, that film, which I shut off about halfway through, he's kind of the main focus or he's one of the major characters in that film. And that's the thing. I feel that if he steps back and he takes his ego out of it and he takes himself actually physically out of the movie, you're going to get a much better movie because, again, in Split, if he had a cameo, it was very slight. I honestly, top of my head, don't really remember it. But the thing is, is there was a twist in that film. You know, it was actually a twist on top of a twist because, you know, the whole, you know, when you look at it, when you look at James Mac- James McAvoy's performance, you know, as Kevin with all these different personalities, um, you're sort of like, wow, you know, this is this is this is a psychological thriller, you know. Clearly, this person has multiple personality, or I think they called it DID um, defense dis- disassociative something, but it's multiple personality disorder, basically. You know, you're you're sort of like you don't see the twist coming that this beast is actually a real thing. This this beast personality actually is like superhuman. The twist on top of that is at the end is you know after Casey escapes and the police find out about you know Kevin the horde the beast whatever you want to call him. You know, we see people watching the news and they're like, wow, that's really like that that guy a few years back that was causing all those accidents. What was his name again? And you see Bruce Willis as David Dunn, say Mr. Glass, and you're like, oh my God, we had just gotten 19 years later or, you know, however many years it was at that time because uh, Glass is actually set 19 years after. We got our sequel to Unbreakable. Not that we were looking for one, but guess what? We got it and now Glass comes out and here comes this trilogy. 
And this is where I'm going to talk about why I think Glass could have been a great film. Because let's, you know, it's it's pretty obvious. Right now, superhero films are dominating the landscape. You know, you have Marvel, you have DC, you have what Sony did with Spider-Verse and Venom. You know, comic book films, comic book shows on TV, comic book streaming services with DC Universe, and then when Disney Marvel comes out with theirs, I mean, this is a huge thing. And I think for the longest time, even before Marvel came out and started their juggernaut and DC started putting movies out there, and even when we would kind of get, you know, your Superman films and you get the Nolan Batman films and even going way back, I always said, you know, it would be nice if somebody could start like a superhero universe, a superhero franchise, not based on Marvel, not based on DC, not based on Image, not based on Black Mask comics or anime or anything like that. Somebody sits down and says, I'm going to create a superhero, a superhero universe that is original. And he did it. For better or for worse, M. Night Shyamalan did it. It's just the fact that, again, I think he is such a poor storyteller. He has the potential to be a good one. He has some great ideas, but he just he gets in his own way, I feel. And he just really, you know, the storytelling is just not good. Um, why is the storytelling, you know, why am I saying that? Because if you watch this film, and I saw this film with John over at The Nerd and Me, and I'm going to tell you guys right now that uh, John and Alan, they both saw it and Probably as I'm speaking right now, they're recording, you know, their episode of Glass. So please jump on over to there after you listen to me, of course. Jump on over to Nerd and Me and listen to their take on the film because I'm sure they're going to have a very unique take on it as well. Um, so John and I saw it and we both kind of agreed, and I'm sure he's going to say this, that this movie could have been easily 30 to 45 minutes shorter. Mr. Glass, Samuel L. Jackson, his character should have been renamed Mr. Exposition. And the film should have been called Exposition because that's what you're getting the entire time. He's he's trying to set up this universe. He's trying to set up this world. And I've seen him in interviews claim that after he made Unbreakable, he did want to do this. He did want to make his trilogy. He did want to create a superhero universe. But because he pretty much left turd after turd in the cinematic universe, I mean, nobody wanted to make his films. You know, to the point until he started really scaling back kind of taking his vanity out of it, taking himself out of his pictures, he started making a couple of good films. Split, of course, you know, was one of them. Uh, And with Split, you know what? He realized, you know, he said this is a film he wanted to make. He wanted it to be the sequel to Unbreakable. He wanted to make a superhero trilogy and establish a superhero universe of his very own right there in his hometown of Philadelphia. He wanted to do that. But he pretty much had destroyed his reputation in Hollywood. He had to really kind of invest in himself and bank in himself to get, you know, his last couple of movies made, Split being one of them. And when he, again, kind of cut his ego out of it and streamlined his story, you had a good film. I mean, Split wasn't an amazing film. I mean, it was a good film. And I think the reason it was such a good film and the reason that I'm not going to totally say that... um Glass is a horrible, horrible film. What makes both of those films so good? It's James McAvoy. James McAvoy in Split and James McAvoy here in Glass is such a phenomenal actor. He is portraying 23 distinct personalities to the point that 
<clears throat> there's a scene where, um, so basically let's, let's, let's talk the story. Let's talk the story a little bit. So this film takes place weeks, maybe a few months after the, um, the events in Split. So based on the ending of Split, we see that David Dunn, uh, the guy from Unbreakable, Bruce Willis, uh, who's known as the Overlooker or the Overwatcher, I think his name is. Uh, you know, he wears the the rain slicker. He's he's a vigilante. He's kind of like a Batman. He's out there fighting crime. Um, he becomes aware of the Horde, uh, of the Beast, of James McAvoy, and he and his son and the actor who plays his son, and I'm going to look up his name because he he was really a great kid, uh, Spencer Spencer Treat Clark. He is the same actor that played Bruce Willis's son back in Unbreakable 19 years ago. Uh, that was really cool because when they show some of the the flashbacks, you know, you see that it actually is the same actor. So that was really really cool. So he and his son own a uh, a security store. You know, they sell cameras and and whatnot. You know, things for security systems. But he uses it. David uses it um, kind of as his bat cave, as his home base to go out there. Um, his son Joseph helps him out. He's sort of the man in the chair there. Um, and they're tracking the Horde. And really what happens with this film is, is we see, uh, you know, the Horde has captured some new girls. He's, he's, he's been terrorizing the city. There's the incident at the Philadelphia Zoo. There's another incident. Now there's this third incident where some cheerleaders have gone missing. So he's patrolling the neighborhood. Now, if you haven't seen Unbreakable, Bruce Willis's character, David, um, is very, very strong. He's very, very resilient. He is unbreakable. Uh, in that film, Mr. Glass, Samuel L. Jackson's character, creates a train disaster. He actually creates disaster after disaster because he feels that he should have his counterpart. Mr. Glass, of course, uh, suffers from... Uh, Osteogena imperfecta, which is basically brittle bone disease. So he is very, very fragile. So he feels that in his mind, he is a supervillain. So his counterpart has to be invulnerable. So he sets up disaster after disaster looking for that invulnerable person and he finds it in Bruce Willis. Um, so, like I said, you know, his abilities are, you know, that he is strong. Uh, he is unbreakable, in fact, and he has an ability that when he comes in contact with people, uh, he kind of gets visions about them, uh, almost kind of like that Stephen King book slash movie with Christopher Walken, and I'm drawing a blank on it, um, where when he makes contact with somebody, he kind of sees, uh, he gets glimpses sort of into their life. So he's wandering around, you know, he's trying, he and his son are trying to track down where could the horde be, where could they horde be, uh, and he comes in contact with one of the personalities of um, James McAvoy, uh, which is Hedwig, which was the nine-year-old boy, uh, hip-hop-loving Hedwig, he's out there, Bruce Willis bumps into him, and he gets a glimpse of it. Um, he he and his son find out where they are. They go there, they rescue the cheerleaders, but he does get into a fight with the beast. And the beast is actually very upset because it's like, wait a minute, there's somebody out there that can go toe to toe with me. I'm supposed to be the pinnacle of human development. And here's this guy who actually kind of fought me to a draw. Well, they both get caught. They get taken to a psychiatric hospital where Elijah, Mr. Glass, that's where he's residing. So we have Dr. Ellie Stable, played by Sarah Paulson, 
Um, she is convinced that all three of these people suffer from delusions of grandeur. They're way too into comic books. Not so much that they're way into comics, but they sort of believe that comic books can come true. They believe that she kind of is trying to tell them that through their force of will, this is what's making that they're not actually superhuman. You know, David actually can't really bend steel bars and he's not unbreakable. Something happened. He had a train accident. Luckily, he was the only one to survive. And because of that, he's developed this delusion that leads him to believe that, you know, he's this superhero, he's this overwatcher, you know, strong, invulnerable, and has the ability to look into people. Like, when he's telling her this, that, look, when I make contact with somebody, I can kind of see into their life, she starts to talk about mentalists and how, you know, great stage mentalists go out there and they could look at a hundred cues on a person and know so much about them. It's almost as if they're reading their mind. So he's, so she says, you've probably been doing this subconsciously. You think it's some mystical power, but you're actually an expert at observation and mentalism. And this is really where the film starts to drag because she's taking her time to explain this to him, then explaining it to Kevin about you know, yes, you do have multiple personality disorder, but you're not really the beast, you know, and in one of his personalities, I think it was Patricia, because Patricia is sort of like the very dominant personality, or maybe it was Dennis, because they're actually both dominant personalities. I think James McAvoy was actually flipping between personalities in this scene. You know, she's giving rational explanations. He's like, well, look, I got shot twice with a shotgun blast. Well, you know, that shotgun, it was sitting in a basement and the shells were old and they were wet and it was probably a misfire and most of them didn't really hit you anyway. Like she's offering and she puts doubt into both of their minds that maybe they really are not that extraordinary. We have Mr. Glass, Elijah, you know, Elijah Price, who is heavily, heavily sedated. And, you know, basically she tells him to, you're a smart guy. I'll give you that. But you're not some super villain, super genius type person. You know, you just you just buy into comic book and comic book war, lore way too much. And that's the thing is, this eats up a good chunk of the film. All this exposition, all this description of what's going on. He's trying to build a universe. M. Night Shyamalan is trying to build a superhero universe here, you know, and that's great, you know, to have an original superhero universe not based on anything in the comics is really, really good. And one thing that he tries to do, and he tries to do this in other films, sometimes he succeeds, a lot of times he falls flat on his face, he really tries to ground it in reality, you know. We have superheroes in this film. You know, we have David Dunn. We have, for better or for worse, you know, you have Kevin, you know, there with his personalities, the Horde, the Beast. You know, he is a superhuman person, be it a hero or a villain. It can go either way. And we have Elijah, who is clearly a supervillain. You know, he's saying, look, heroes and villains do exist, but there's no Infinity Stone out there. You know, there's no cosmic radiation. There's no radioactive spider. It's just people can become superhuman. You know, maybe he kind of plants this in our mind. M. Night Shyamalan kind of plants this in our mind that maybe what the doctor was saying, what, you know, what Dr. Price was saying might be true. You know, that maybe something happens and you believe it so much that, you know, maybe I am superhuman. Maybe I am really that strong. Maybe I really am unbreakable. And, you know, that sort of 
I don't want to say delusion, but that sort of belief and your core values can lead you to become, in David's case, a hero, a vigilante, in Elijah's case, a supervillain. Um, so he's really trying to build a superhero universe, but not a fantastical one. You know, not one where we have a super soldier serum and, you know, we have a scientist who accidentally gets hit with radi- you know, gamma radiation. He's really trying to ground it in reality. And I think he was doing a good job. It's just he's setting up way too much. He's really trying to blow out this universe all in one shot. And that's why I kind of question, did he really want to make this trilogy? Because you can see the links between the three films. You really can. But by the time we get to Glass, it sort of feels like, oh, I was trying to set up the superhero universe. I really didn't kind of do a good job of that. So now in this last film, I got to spend 70% of it setting it up. Here's the other thing. These three guys are in a mental hospital, in a mental institution with some of the crappiest security I've ever seen. I mean, John and I were watching it, and we're just seeing scenes of doors being left open. Um, You know, this is a hospital. There are other patients there. There were a lot of patients there, like one nurse, one or two security guards, one doctor. Like, we hardly see anybody in this building. Yes, because Elijah is so smart, and he might sneak out, and he might do something. They install 100-plus cameras all throughout this facility. They point this out a lot in this film. But you have one nurse or one nurse's aide. You have a security guard that never goes on patrol. I mean, there is a nurse's aide that, you know, comes in contact with Mr. Glass, and this is when he institutes his escape plan and his big overall scheme. Uh, He slits the man's throat. Nobody realizes this for a good 10 to 12 hours. And when they do realize it, nobody is picking up the phone. I'm sorry, you find a dead body. 911, what's your emergency? We're not calling the cops until all hell's about to break loose. Um, Samuel L. Jackson's Mr. Glass teams up with the whore, James McAvoy. Uh, his big plan is, is, look, this is how it goes in the comic books. You have that epic fight. You have that epic fight in a public square where everyone can see it. That's how it goes in the comic books. So they're opening the largest building in Philadelphia, the tallest building in Philadelphia. So he said, you know, he says to the horde, he says to the beast, you know, you want people to know who you are. I want people to know that extraordinary people exist. Well, that guy over there, David, the overwatcher, the overlooker, the tiptoe man, whatever you want to call him, you know, that's it. A battle between the two of you and, you know, and I'm going to take over the building and I'm going to, there's a chemical lab in there and I'm going to blow it up. You know, we're going to show the world. They're setting it up. They're escaping. This is the longest escape in history. I mean, you watch The Great Escape, you watch The uh, Escape from Alcatraz, they escape from Alcatraz a lot faster than these three guys are escaping from a mental institution with one security guard and, uh, you know, a nurse's aide who, or two of them who get killed pretty easily and nobody's bothering to call the cops. I mean, you would think they, they should be out of there in two, three minutes, no problem. But there was a reason for all that. There was a reason that the escape did take long. You do find it out in the end. And when you find it out in the end, and we'll talk about the ending soon, when you find it out in the end, you're sort of like, oh, okay, now I understand. But still, I had to sit through all this. I had to sit through the fact that they're in a facility with essentially doors left open and hardly anybody in there. 
And I'm like, it's taken him an hour to escape. You know, John and I are sitting there watching this going, what the heck? Like, they should be out. They should be roaming the streets of Philadelphia. There should be this epic battle that we are promised. But we learn in the end why this didn't come to fruition. It was actually the overall plan of Mr. Glass. And yes, it was a nice twist at the end. But there was so much setup and so much discussion to get there. The film really gets bogged down. John and I were watching this film. There was a couple sitting next to me. With about a half hour left in the movie, they got up and walked out. I mean, I think they, they had just had it. And I, and I don't blame them. End of the day, this is a very mediocre film that had the potential to be very good. Because the ending that we get is they do finally escape. And they have their big battle out there. You know, the Beast and David Dunn. They slug it out with absolutely nobody watching. The only people that are watching are the doctor, Bruce Willis's son, Elijah's mom, and Casey, who she's sort of connected to the the horde, the beast, Kevin, and all that. What what happens with those three individuals is, you know, they believe. Elijah's mom believes him, you know, she, you know, he's taught her all about comic book lore. She understands, she knows how smart he is. Um, Joe Dunn, Joseph Dunn, David Dunn's son, from the time he was a kid all the way up to now, he knows, he knows his dad is a superhero and he's going to prove it. He goes out to the comic book store, he reads up on comic book lore, as does Casey. We get a lot of that. We get a lot of scenes in comic book stores where... These characters, uh, except for Elijah's mom, because, you know, Elijah was a huge comic book fan, so she was exposed to this her entire life. But, you know, Casey and Joseph have to go to comic book stores, and they have to read up, and they have to kind of, like, we have to see the light bulb kind of turn on over their heads, like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Don't, Don't do all that. Let's let's go. Let's get this movie going. And the thing is, the, the shame of it is, is those three characters at the end show up for this epic battle, and they're standing there really doing nothing. I mean, they really it comes to almost nothing until we get to the very end. So they're having their big battle. There's a back and forth. We learn that that train accident 19 years ago, the one that created David Dunn, also created the Horde, created you know the Beast. Because, as we know from Split, and it's explained further here, Kevin's mother was highly abusive. uh, To the point that he had to develop these 22, 23, 26, whatever it is, personalities as defense mechanisms. And that's what happens in people that have uh, multiple personality disorder. We find out that his father was actually a very kind and gentle man and was really trying to help him out until that day. He got on the same exact train as David Dunn. So, train accident happens. David survives. He realizes that he is unbreakable. But Kevin's father dies and never comes home. And he's left with his mother. And he develops these personalities. And he develops into the beast. So, this was Elijah's plan all along. Is, you know, he created two superior superhuman individuals and now he's going to show it to the world but you think he's not going to show it to the world because it doesn't go beyond the borders of this mental facility the cops eventually show up and what we get is when uh david's son joseph reveals the fact that mr glass actually directly created the beast the beast turns on mr glass 
you know, of course, he's very, very fragile, breaks most of his bones, so Elijah's lying there dying. Um, as they're fighting, you know, David's sort of vulnerability, because as a young boy, he nearly drowned. He's afraid of the water. They fight in this giant water tank. Uh, Bruce Willis does manage to escape, but he's left very, very weak because he nearly drowned. So he's sitting there, you know, lying there on the ground, nearly choking to death. The beast is about to go. He's about to run amok in the city. When Casey comes over, she makes contact with him because she's the only person that could reach that original personality. She could reach Kevin. And she reaches out to him and she calls him out. And he comes in and she's like, please, you have to take over. You have to be that dominant personality. You have to take the light. That's what they call it inside of of Kevin. When the personality emerges, they are taking the light. You know, they're sort of taking center stage. Kevin's always been terrified to do that, but Casey talks him into it. And no sooner does she do that when the police shoot him because he's no longer the beast. He's no longer, you know, that invulnerable, indestructible person. So he's laying there dying. Um, Bruce Willis is there, very, very weak. The cops come over and they begin to drown him. And as this is happening and Joseph is, well, I don't even know if Joseph's trying to stop it because he just kind of suddenly disappeared. Dr. Price comes over and she tells him, you know, she's like, take my hand, take my hand. He gets a glimpse into her life where we find out that she's a member of a secret society that their agenda is either to kind of keep balance in the world or sort of kind of prevent the public at large from knowing about these superior individuals, these superhuman individuals. They've, they've really been squelching it all throughout. And what Elijah says throughout the, the film, you know, he says it in Unbreakable and he continues it here in Glass, is that comic books are history books. You know, comic books, he says, look, they reflect the times that they are written. You know, go back to Captain America. We're in World War II. We're fighting Nazis. We're fighting the Japanese. We create Captain America. You look at the 60s. You look at that time of turmoil with civil rights. You know, Stan Lee came up with the X-Men, like his kind of take on civil rights. You started getting, you know, Luke Cage. You started getting Black Panther, you know, these positive African-American characters. Comic books reflect the times. And that's what he's trying to say is it's not just a coincidence this is actually happening and we see it when Casey and we see it when Joseph go to the comic book stores and they're looking at it especially Casey she actually sees the beast in the comics you know saying that comic books are sort of like historical documents but it's dismissed as works of fiction and childish and maybe it's because of the society that we see and Dr. Price what she was trying to do is look she was trying to say, we have to be humane. We're not murderers. We're not killers. Let's not kill these people. She was so convinced that she could, in a matter of days, convince these three individuals that there was really nothing extraordinary about them. They were suffering from delusions of grandeur. I mean, to the point that both the Beast and David Dunn actually thought, she's right. And, she, you know, the thing is, it just so happens Elijah outsmarted her. And she was like, unfortunately, it had to come to this. But... When I move on and I go to the next city, I know I can do it. And that's what we see is we see that, okay, his big plan to reveal it failed or did it. Because as he's dying, Elijah's mom comes over to him and she said, you know, you were wrong. What happened? This was supposed to be the big reveal, the big one. And he's laughing and he said, it never was. It was an origin story. So then you're led to believe, is it an origin story of the secret society that they're going to go around kind of keeping under wraps extraordinary people so 
people at large don't know? No. It's the origin of M. Night Shyamalan's superhero universe because the reason the escape took so long, the reason they went through the basement, like they said, that's a big mistake, going through the basement, it'll take them too long. He accessed the server of the cameras inside the institution. He downloaded all the footage of the fight between the Beast and David Dunn and sent it out to his mother, to Casey, and to Joseph. And they revealed it out to the world. So the secret society's plans have been foiled. The world now knows that there can be extraordinary people out there and it'll now allow more extraordinary people to kind of step up and and take the forefront. And that's what we get. And when you really cut out a lot of the fat, when you trim the fat on this story, it's actually a pretty good story. It's just bogged down by exposition. And there's so much silliness in it, you get frustrated. I mean, you look at this mental hospital. I mean, they could have escaped. All three of them could have escaped really at just about any time. And they really could have made themselves known so much easier and so much quicker. Um, the scenes with Dr. Price talking to them and just exposition on top of exposition on top of exposition. It just weighs this film down. It bogs it down. It's a superhero story, a superhero universe grounded in reality, which is great. It's unique. It's fresh. We really need that. We just can't have M. Night Shyamalan tell this story. He is not a good storyteller. When he gets lucky, he tells a great story, but he doesn't get lucky very often. I really hate to say it. We know he's going to have twists. We sit there and we look for the twists. So he really tries to hide his twists and turns. But by doing that, he bogs his stories down. He makes them complex. He adds an exposition to the point that, you know, you think he's trying to throw you off the trail... I feel he's trying to bore you to death so that you're just like, you don't see the twist coming because you're nearly asleep or you're so confused. And it's a shame because I think it had a lot of potential. And I think at the end, and especially no post-credit scenes, no nothing. Film ends. It's revealed to the world about extraordinary super people. That's it. We're done. I don't think he's going to go back to this universe. I don't think anybody's going to want to go back to this universe. But this is this is my hope. I'm hoping that young writers out there take a look at what he tried to do and they expound upon it. Uh, I really would like to see brand new superhero, superhuman universes, not based on anything in the comic books, but taking that comic book mythos, taking that comic book... I don't know. I don't want to say... Use the word religion. uh, But just, just, just... the mentality of comic books, the thinking of comic books and building upon it, you know, instead of, instead of, you know, trying to build a new superhero universe with, you know, some mystical ray or mystical relic that gives the hero his powers, do it grounded in reality, the way that, the way that Mr. Glass did it, you know, or I'm sorry, the way that the movie Glass did, um, It's just, yeah, I mean, I'm going to say it again. He's just a very poor storyteller. And I kind of knew we were in trouble in this film early on when we get a scene, an extended scene with M. Night Shyamalan in it. He's at David Dunn's security store. He's buying a camera. And he's going on way too long there. It's, It's way too long. If it was a quick... Yeah, I'm the super at this building and there's been some crime, so I need a, I need a camera for the building. Hey, thanks. Goodbye. 
fine, that's fine. You want to put your little cameo in there, that's fine. But it it went on a little too long, and I was like, you know, the longer he is physically in his movies, the less enjoyable they become. Not because of the fact that we see him. It just it just seems like a like a correlation. He does a quickie cameo. It's a pretty good film. He has an extended cameo. Eh, the film's not that great. He tries to be one of the stars of the film. You get Lady in Water. <sighs> but end of the day, five stars out of five stars. I'll give it a two and a half. Had potential. James McAvoy, an amazing, amazing actor. Uh, first of all, uh, who's his trainer? <laughs> who's his nutritionist? Because, my God, he was a monster in this. And playing 23 distinct personalities to the point that, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever he would have a change in posture and a change in demeanor, doesn't say a word, you know. He's Dennis. He's Miss Patricia. He's Kevin. You know, you could tell. He doesn't have to utter a word. It's just his face, his mannerisms, his posture. You know which personality he is. Great, 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 great actor. But I will say this. I used to love Bruce Willis. I used to be a very big Bruce Willis fan. And I find that as he's gotten older and as he's made more and more films, he's kind of turned into a tired actor. And that's how he appeared on screen. I mean, he seemed to have a little bit more pep and a little bit more kind of investment in the film than he has in some of his past films, but I felt he was a shadow of his former self just kind of floating around in this film. I felt that he kind of did a half-assed performance, maybe a little bit better than that, and it's a shame because he was an actor that I grew up with and I really, really enjoyed, and I feel now that he's just... He's tired, he's bored, and he was just there to be there. James McAvoy is is the saving grace of this film, and you know it's the reason that I would give it two and a half instead of saying you know one and a half or two stars. You know he gets he gets those bonus points. No James McAvoy in this film. And this film takes drops down even even further. Good story, good idea, just told and executed very poorly. Uh, I can get into the cinematography which, again, definitely not one of his strong points. I, I really don't know what M. Night Shyamalan's strong points are. I'm, I'm sorry, I am just not a fan. Never really was, and I don't think I ever really will be, and whatever, it is what it is. Guys, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Again, John and Alan over at Nerd and Me, they're going to be talking about Glass. If you're interested, you want to hear a different take on it, hear their views, I know I'm going to be listening. Jump on over there, listen to theirs. Also, head on over to www.brothersandarmchairs.com. That's the website that will link you up to every single podcast inside the Brothers and Armchairs network. Stuff you don't need to know is there. Nerd and Me is there. Enter the Nerd Zone is there. Fat Guys and Little Coats is there. And Defender of the Realm, of course. This is Jay... And I will talk to you guys later.